Welcome. Welcome to the other side of midnight. So glad to have you here. Our host, Richard C. Hoagland, is having technical problems. This is Kinthea. I'm standing in for you. We've got an amazing show lined up. Tonight it's called 911, what the families have asked and the 911 commission ignored. Our illustrious guest tonight, I'm really excited to bring on a new guest we haven't had before, and then Barbara Honiger, who's been many times on the show. She's a leading researcher, author, documentarian, and public speaker on the events of September 11th. She played a key role in achieving the declassification and release of the 28 pages, which led to the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. That has enabled the lawsuits of thousands of 911 victims' families members to finally move forward in the courts. She has served as special assistant to the president as a White House policy analyst, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2011, was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university at the Department of Defense. So I'm really pleased to be bringing Barbara. And our new guest tonight, and I hope he will return, is Ray McGinnis. He is an educator with the University Church of Canada, working at their national office for nine years. He is the author of Writing the Sacred, a Psalm-inspired path to appreciating and writing sacred poetry. McGinnis is interested in stories we tell and ones we ignore and how they shape our worldview. He's taught many workshops And it's this focus of his that led his curiosity around the story surrounding 911. He became really interested in news stories kept off the radar. This led him to delve deeper into the questions of the Family Steering Committee for the 911 Independent Commission. So these are the questions that are the source of his book, Unanswered Questions. In it, he explores the family steering commission of the 911 to investigate. And his website is unansweredquestions.ca. So welcome, Barbara. Welcome, Ray. I'm so pleased to have you on the other side of midnight. Thank you, Kinthea. Thank you, Kinthea. (laughs) Yeah, great to have you here. I mean, this was a show we cannot put off. It's an important show. And so many events are unfolding daily, new new uh, revelations are happening. And I would like to, I'm so curious what led you down this path. And I know Barbara's um, got a lot of great questions for you. Uh, what led me down this path? Uh, it's a really, I mean, I think of myself as probably one of many, many people who are ordinary citizens Around the world, we're all living in a post-9-11 world, and up here in Canada and Vancouver and many other countries. I mean, there were nearly 90 nations in addition to the United States where people lost lives on the attacks of September 11th, 26 in Canada, and 159 um, Canadian forces military died in the war in Afghanistan, and many more were, were casual you know, injured. And I began in, in night, I mean, on September 11th, I was in Joshua Tree National Park. Hmm. I don't, if, if, if you know that area, it's, it's very hot. Uh, uh, and it's uh, on September, the week of, you know, the attacks, uh, there's, it's, it's often, uh, you know, in the hundred degrees, you know, even mm-hmm. into the hundred and tens. And so uh, I was part of a retreat with about 60 people. I was the only person who was not an American citizen. The other people at this retreat uh, were uh, from across about 20 different states across the USA. I got up 
first thing in the morning because that was when it was cool enough to do so and have a walk in the uh, in the desert, go past the Ocotillo cactus and the saguaro cactus and see some jackrabbits, saw a, a plane flying east from one of the airports in Western California and uh, got to 7 a.m. and it was uh, time for meditation and then stretching. So mm. this is a regular kind of a day in many kinds of retreat settings where people are going to refresh and renew and trying to figure out um, what's the next chapter in their life. It, it happens that, that uh, it just so happens that Richard, Richard C. Hoagland, the host, we also did a retreat there at Joshua Center. So I know well of that area that you speak of. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, people <laughs> gathering, 60 people mm -hmm. in this hall and stretching. And then suddenly in comes one of the, uh, you know, key leaders of the event. Uh, this setting is no TV, there's no radio. Mm -hmm. But somebody in the leadership has received a phone call from someone who is a close friend out on the East Coast and talking about how there are planes that have hit the North and South Tower of the World Trade Center and uh, that the Pentagon has also been hit. I don't know if we ever got told about another plane, but but I remember that much. And uh, as we were being told, stand in a circle and listen to the to this information, there were two people in the room who had uh, a, a manager of their finances, their stock portfolio, who worked in one of the Twin Towers. And so they're, you know... Concerned. Daphne, you know, <laughs> Daphne lets out a cry... <laughs> Other people uh, started to sob, and it's very, of course, it's very um, moving. Visceral. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm and, it's, and it's often it catches me right now as I feel this emotion welling up. Mm -hmm. I haven't lost anyone on September 11th. I just know somebody in that room who had a financial officer, and and they later survived. But even still, it's that you know choking up feeling. And, and so, uh, so there I was, uh, uh, my plane that was supposed to go back about a day or two later, I couldn't leave, all the flights were grounded. Um, and so eventually, I, five days later, I got uh, up to Seattle on uh, the first planes that were allowed to fly domestically, and then was on a slow bus up to Vancouver with a three-hour stop at the Canadian Customs uh, with a thorough check for bombs and everything and got back into Canada. And so there I am back in my country. And then the first thing I did to sort of figure out, um, you know, where am I going forward with this story was I went to hear our former foreign affairs minister, Lloyd Axworthy, who gave a public talk at the Pub Vancouver Public Library, the Central Library. Mm -hmm. And he, t he talked about how he thought, I mean, you know, the benefit of the doubt was, okay, the president of the United States has accused Osama bin Laden with orchestrating this attack. So uh, Lloyd Axworthy said, um, it seems that the sensible thing is, since this is an individual citizen of a nation, that the best response is a police and intelligence response to find a way to get apprehend this person and uh, take them to some, some setting, international or America, and have a trial. Uh, he was saying already there was the war drums with uh, Afghanistan. He, he, he uh, cautioned against that. He thought it would be a mistake. And so, uh, so that's, you know, what I heard. And then mm -hmm. before Ray, uh, I'm, then of course, yeah. I'm really curious uh, in this journey of going from the retreat back to Canada, yeah. uh, you mentioned it was such a visceral experience. What was the, what was the tone, the feeling of the people at the retreat? And also when you returned to Canada, how were the Canadians feeling about all this that had happened? I remember there were some people in the room. There was one, uh, there was a couple of guys who were uh, more into uh, martial arts, and they were kind of ready to uh, kick some butt. You know, mm. it was kind of that, that was part of the response. There were other people that were, you know, sobbing and and you know needing a lot of a, a lot of uh, nurture and and feeling very vulnerable. Uh, I, I I was just. I remember being sh shocked. I mean, I didn't have, unlike um, many people, and you know, I may as well say this now, I don't have a television at home. Mm -hmm. And 
and I hadn't since since the Iraq War in 1991, and it was partly my own a combination of things. I was busy with the former job I had at the United Church of Canada's national office in Toronto. I was traveling 100 days a year, I, going to many conferences and leadership development events, and I didn't have time to watch TV. I didn't have time for sitcoms, and I thought, why am I spending this money every month on paying for television that I never watch? So I, I took the, the television and gave it to a you know, second-hand store. And so I'd been carrying on. So I, I was one of the people, I don't know how many people would be like me, I didn't see the image. I mean, I saw the photographs on the, you know, Vancouver Sun regarding the Twin Towers or whatever and the, the desolation afterwards. But I didn't actually see any video footage mm. of the towers being hit until about 2005. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, it was really something because I remember them playing over and over and over and over. It's just like, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, uh, I think it's divine like, intervention. You went, didn't have a TV. Go ahead, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, well, th this is fascinating to me. Um, I, I have a comment and then a, an obvious follow-on question mm -hmm. um, to what you just said. And my comment is um, the the former, if I understood correctly, I forget forget his uh, title. Yeah, the, foreign uh, affairs minister. Yeah. yeah, the former foreign affairs minister of Canada. And he was absolutely right, of course. Uh, we should have never gone to war in Afghanistan, um, besides the fact that we now know for a fact that the official narrative of what happened on 9-11 is a complete and total Hitlerian big lie yeah. uh, as to who attacked America on 9-11 and, and how and why. Um, but putting that aside, uh, it was in fact the Pentagon attack, not the attack on the World Trade Center towers, but in particular the Pentagon attack, which was an attack like Pearl Harbor, that got the United States into World War II. Um, it was the attack on the Pentagon on an iconic national military facility like the original Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. that got us into World War II that enabled the Bush-Cheney administration and the intelligence and military, intelligence community and military of the United States um, to say that it was a war, um, not oh. to use the, the normal... Uh, court system, the civilian mm. court system, uh, mm. and the police powers um, to simply arrest bin Laden and uh, bring him into court someplace and you know put him away in Florence penitentiary um, okay. for the rest of his life. They, they, the entire operation, the inside operation was designed to uh, as a pretext for first war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. Um, so that's my comment. Um, the yes. Pentagon attack, which is my expertise, yes. which is the key to that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and my question, uh, go ahead if you want to comment on it, then I have my question. No, I think, I think, and there may, there may well, of course, I'm in Joshua Tree National Park, and not only is there no radio and no TV, there's also no newspaper. So, <laughs> so, so I wasn't even seeing uh, a newspaper until about, uh, I mean, I got back on the, on the I guess the 15th, uh, 15th, 16th, uh, I heard Lloyd Axworthy speak on the, on the 18th. I mean, by the time I got back on the 16th, I mean, I wasn't like going off and trying to find a newspaper. There are a whole bunch of people who are concerned about me and thank goodness you're back in Canada and I mean, concerned about America and whatever's happening. So I had a, a big, long list of social engagement for people that want to be reassured that I was okay and back in Vancouver. So I wasn't reading any papers at all. I probably didn't even read, read a, a newspaper until you know, later on, like the 23rd, 24th. So there could have been all kinds of important headline stories or stories on page B12 or, or E17 that I missed that would have even told me about what you're saying right now. Right, right. Well, given what you've just told us, which, which does make you an outlier, um, that you didn't have TV, you didn't have newspapers for all of those days, you didn't see the ad nauseum repeats of the, the second plane going into World Trade Center 2, um, and um, you, you really didn't uh, uh, follow this up uh, with research for quite a long time. So the obvious next question which is the one that comes to mind next for me, is 
there there must what was it that got you onto this particular project because there are a lot of narratives there are a lot of stories there are a lot of national stories but 911 mm-hmm. is one of them it's an incredibly important one uh, the official narrative and then the alternative narratives of 911 that our 911 truth movement of course has been working on for 20 years including mm-hmm. myself yeah um, but my question is what was it that got you into this? And in particular, there must have been some moment or some piece of information, something you were told that led you to at least question the official story. And yeah. that, that must have had something to do with your choosing this project, this book project. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing, the first thing that I came across, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm, part of this liberal Protestant tradition up here in Canada. And so there are people that I know in the States as well. And one of the people, because some of the people involved in process theology and the thought of David or of uh, Alfred North Whitehead. And so I, uh, one of, I know John Cobb Jr. who wrote the foreword to my book. And also uh, I, I think I'd heard at least at one event up in Canada in Ontario uh, David Ray Griffin had had given a talk about theology uh, in the 1980s. So so when I came upon a I think it was a, it was an edit a column by Rosemary Radford Ruther, a feminist theologian uh, in California, who I knew, who I'd heard speak before at a conference, and up in Canada, she'd come up to Canada, and and I regarded her highly for her theological thinking. And so she had written in, uh, and I forget right now which, which, uh, which, which magazine, but she'd wrote in a, uh, an article, I think it was either January 2004 or January 2005, but it was a, it was, it was a, a book review of David Ray Griffin's The New Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, only so many, I don't know, a thousand words, whatever, you know, but, but it was saying, you know, this is, this is a book that's really important. And, and so she put the, um, uh, she, you know, she put the idea in my mind that I'm going to buy the new Pearl Harbor by David Ray Griffin. And I probably That'll didn't get That'll do it. Yeah. So, so, so I think by 2006, I had bought the book. Because you may understand, as someone who's a writer and teaches writing workshops, I mean, I, I, and as an author now of Writing the Sacred, at every single writing workshop I go to, almost everyone, two out of three, some lovely person, participant in my group says, here, I've always wanted you to get this book, or here's something I've written. And so I start to get stacks of books that people want me to look at. So, so, so the new Pearl Harbor was, was there, but it was on a stack of about 20 books to get to. But it was important, so I, re- I read it. Now, when I read it, I thought, this is really interesting, and this is a very compelling argument that there is, can be a totally different way of understanding this. Now, I'm, think, I'm reading this book by myself, I don't really have hardly anybody that I that I was talking with. Nobody was really bringing up September 11th in a in a dissenting or contrary or questioning way of the people that I knew. Not in the in the liberal churches, which have all kinds of things they're concerned about climate change and all kinds of other issues around the world and justice for First Nations people and all kinds of things. But this issue wasn't on their radar. So I wouldn't get into conversations with people about that, about this at all. So it's like I got, I read this book. I thought, this is really interesting. And I'm, and I think it's very compelling, but I didn't choose to write my book at that point. What, what got me to write my book was a couple of years later, I was on another writing workshop tour and I finished the book I was reading and I needed to find another book to finish the final 10, 10 days of the, uh, of, of the tour. And I happened to be in an airport and I went to the bookstore and there was a book by Kristen Breitweiser called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow. Mm-hmm. And her husband, Ron, had died in the South Tower. And so I looked at the book, I looked at the index, I looked at, you know, the endorsements, and I decided to buy the book. And as I read it, I, I was um, really surprised that I could go, as somebody who follows the mainstream media and a little bit the alternate media at that time, that I could go six years 
listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and reading the Vancouver Sun and the Globe and Mail up here and, and catching CNN or MSNBC once in a while and other BBC. And I could go six years and never hear a thing about the Family Steering Committee, only know the families in this way, that I had read some uh, reprints of obituaries in the New York Times in the Vancouver Sun, that I had heard on, on occasion on the radio uh, on the anniversaries, people reading the names of their loved ones that they lost, and a few articles here and there of uh, what a great person this was that died on September 11th, and it was kind of an amazing story about all their accomplishments and it isn't awful that they died. And that was the whole slant. So now I'm reading this memoir about someone who is part of a group of, of people, including herself, who was widowed with a two-year-old in suburban New Jersey housewife, who's um, now deciding to not just tuck in and have a private life uh, and, and, and heal from her grief, but to decide to meet with other family members who are willing and to go to Washington, D.C. and knock on the doors of members of Senate and Congress and have a rally uh, outside, the, outside the Capitol buildings and demand an investigation. Right. And I thought, this is a really important story, and why have I gone half, half, you know, six years without hearing about it? Good question. Uh, by the way, Christian Breitweiser, in my opinion, was the, the, the most important uh, member of the Jersey Girls, the famous Jersey Girls, yeah. without which there would have never been a 9-11 commission, uh, without which the 9-11 commission wouldn't have been a whitewash, <laughs> without yeah. which you wouldn't have your book. Yes. Um, and she's also an attorney, by the way. She wasn't just a housewife. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And yes. that made all the difference um, because uh, the other Jersey Girls were, um, uh, I think, moms, uh, you know, taking care of their families and such, and probably with jobs. But Kristen uh, is, was and is an attorney. Yeah. And so it was her analytical ability and her legal mind um, that really um, brought everything together uh, to, to actually pull together the, the uh, questions um, that the formal questions, list of questions that the 9-11 um, victims' family members led by the Jersey Girls uh, gave to the 9-11 Commission. So maybe you could go into, um, you know, the questions, how it came up in your research that the 9-11 victims' family members led by the Jersey Girls actually came up with the questions and what are those questions and and what does that have to do with your book? Yes, yeah. So, yes, I think my sense is that, yes, I mean, certainly Kristen Breitweiser was a lawyer and then I, th I think that at the point where she, you know, gave birth, First, she was spending a bit more time just being a mom in that first right. year and a bit. But okay. yes, absolutely agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so her book was a catalyst. Uh, then I went off and got the, you know, found the Family Steering Committee website, looked at their many unanswered questions, saw the video uh, uh, documentary 9-11 Press for Truth. And then my dad uh, got multiple myeloma in 2010. So for three and a half years, I shelved any idea of writing a book until he died in early 2014. And, and, then, and, and then I went back to it and I decided I, I do need to write this. So, so like the, I think the families, like their journey uh, is a really interesting one because uh, of the 12 people on the family steering committee, including the four Jersey girls, Three of the five that I know of who have told the press how they voted in 2000 voted for the Bush-Cheney ticket. That's right. You know, I mean, Bill Harvey and Kristen Breitweiser and Patty Casaza voted for, for Bush-Cheney. And Patty Casaza has said that, that she thought, having voted for Bush, that she thought that he would be their biggest champion in the effort to, to make the nation safe and get to the bottom of what happened. But she found that he was their biggest advocate. Okay. And, and so that, yeah, so that's, that's like one of the first kind of wake up calls for them in terms of getting things going and all this resistance. And then well, I, yeah. I have one other question. And then I know Kintia has many. Mm -hmm. um, but you said I, I knew I had to write the book. Can you explain that? Why did you feel you had to write it? Well, I felt urged to do this because we're, we're all living in a post 9-11 world. I thought it's a, it's, 
there's been such a change. There's the Afghan war, the Iraq war, the anthrax attacks, the war on terror, endless wars, no end in sight, mass surveillance, and a real um, deforming of democracy. I mean, not just in America, but other places too. And so I thought it was important to write about this, but I also thought that I might be able to write a book I, having read David Ray Griffin's book and then later on Kevin Ryan's Another 19, and, and excellent, commendable books, uh, very solid, hard-hitting, political science, current events books. But I knew that the people, many of the people who, t who were taking my poetry workshops, my journaling through grief and loss workshops, uh, journaling to recover from health and injuries and illnesses, didn't have quite the same head or mind to grapple with some of these books. They would find them a bit too challenging or steep just because they weren't, they hadn't taken political science courses or history courses or whatever. And I thought the, the only way for the people that are coming to my writing workshops to be able to kind of tackle this topic is to write about this topic with a liberal sprinkling of personal narrative. Mm -hmm. The personal narrative, like to introduce people to Kristen Breitweiser, Lori Van Auken, Mindy Kleinberg, Monica Gabrielle, Mary Fetchett, all of these people and more beyond the, the FSC itself, that that would be a way that if there was enough storytelling or, or you know, excerpts of people's testimony before the 9-11 Commission or whatever, that that layering would be able to help people go ahead with maybe the more difficult discussion of, of uh, NORAD and what NORAD is, and, you know, because sometimes people just feel overwhelmed. But I wanted to be able to write a book that the people that I knew could be interested in this, if they had a way in with personal narrative, would hang in with the story, that I, uh, with the book I wanted to write. Yeah, well, not only that, but in my opinion, it's a pretty informed opinion doing this for 20 years, like full time, um, since the day of 9-11 itself. Um, yeah. It is my informed opinion that the key to moving forward, the 9-11 truth movement forward to legal accountability for the real perpetrators are, in fact, the 9-11 victims' family members. And yeah. in particular, the Jersey girls. Um, yeah. because, um, and, and people like Colleen Rowley, um, yeah. who, you know, was on the cover of Time magazine, um, I believe, along with Kristen Breitweiser, uh, uh, as whistleblowers on 9-11, all women, by the way. Yes. Um, and um, I also believe that a, a critical key to it, and, and you may you may be the man, the person uh, to to be uh, like a catalyst for this. But I believe that what hasn't happened yet in the United States, in any case, you can tell us about Canada, but the liberal churches need to be awakened um, in this country. Uh, we need to we need to go to the progressive uh, religious community. And uh, that has not happened. Um, we also have not yet uh, gone into the universities. Uh, there have not been teach-ins like during the Vietnam War. Mm. I mean, there are many, many things that need to be done, but there's no question in my mind that when you are able to bring in, especially at the core of your story, which is why your book is so important, um, to bring into the core of the narrative um, the 9-11 victims' family members so that ordinary people, not just in the United States and Canada, but around mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. can see that, oh, my God, if the Jersey Girls and other 9-11 victims' family members who lost their loved ones in the towers or on the plains or at the Pentagon or in Pennsylvania in Shanksville, if they want to know why NORAD didn't scramble uh, for the first time ever. Not just This is a really good spot to break in, Barbara. We have yeah. a break now. Okay. Beautiful. But Thank you. So you are listening to The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is called 911, What the Families Have Asked and the 911 Commission Ignored. And our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. And we'll return after the break.
Well, I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency, you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on, I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globaloni is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. other side of midnight our guests tonight are ray mcginnis and barbara honiger and the show is called 911: what the families have asked and the 911 commission has ignored so i have really been enjoying listening to how your book is distinguished from the other books out there that it appeals to the person who really hasn't had a lot of exposure to the unveiling of this crime, if you will, definitely. And uh, Ray, Barbara, we have a caller on the line who was actually at 911. It was there. Usually we don't take callers till the third hour, and I'm thinking maybe we just bring this caller on for a moment to get a, a sense of the flavor of what we're talking about. Are you both in agreement? I think yes. that's a great idea. Because okay. So, Keith, would you zero. please bring on that caller? Mm-hmm. Yes, how are you? Hello. Good, thanks. Who, Hello. Who, I'm sorry, dear. Who are you? Oh, yeah. My name is Rick. I uh, I worked, uh, unfortunately, well, thank God I worked there that day. And I saw everything that happened. How close uh, were didn't, you? What's that? How close to it were you? Uh, I was actually on the train from New Jersey when the second plane hit. That's why they shut us down. But I hid in the bathroom on the New Jersey Transit, and, and I got out of the NJ Penn, or at New York oh Penn. Goodness. And uh, mm-hmm. then, unfortunately, I watched the I watched the buildings go down. Oh my goodness! Well, you know what I'd like to do, 
Ray, since you wrote the book and you're a writer, I mean, I could ask questions of Rick, but I'm sure that you're biting at the, <laughs> chomping at the bit, so to speak, to get a chance to interview this individual. Would you like to ask him some questions? Yeah. So, Rick, what? Um, so you you were above ground at the point that before the towers fell. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I was just coming out of New York Penn. Uh, right, like about about thirteen minutes before the buildings fell. So and unfortunately, did, I had to watch it. And, and uh, did you happen to talk to anyone before the towers fell that had an interesting thing to say to you, or interesting conversation with anyone prior to the first tower falling? Well, no, because I I literally came up the steps uh, at Madison Square Garden. Like, you know, right, you know, okay. you know, New York Penn Station. Yeah, I do. I literally came up right as it was, I wasn't supposed to be there. I was in a train full of military and, uh, well, like National Guard and, and Port Authority cops because I was, we were all supposed to be left at the last, the last stop in Jersey, but I had to get to work, so I hid in the bathroom. Why, why were you, they were like, you're not allowed to be there. And I said, what are you going to do? Turn around? Rick? Yeah, this, yes. this is Barbara. Um, I'm an investigator of 9-11 for 20 years and co-host of this show. Um, I, would, I would like to know, why were you with these military uh, personnel? Uh, what was, were you part of the military well, I, uh, I, mission? No, I just said, I hid in the bathroom when they had the last stop, and they were so panicky they didn't check. And then as soon as we got it, at Penn Station in New York, they went. I jumped out, and they were like, "Who are you?" And I was like, "I'm just. I work at. I work at the radio station. I work at, you know, WNEW." Right. No, they I said, understand. Well, you're not supposed to be here. I go. What are you going to do? Turn it around. Let me go. So they just let me go out of the train station. Right. So, so, so these military personnel. Um, please, please clarify for me. Forgive me for not understanding, but you were on uh, some kind of transportation with them. Yeah, that's, yeah, the train. The train. I, I'm not. A, I'm not. A I familiar. think Barbara, if I'm understanding, Rick, you were on the train. Then the military happened to be on there, or they got on after you were on, and you no, hid so they would right, notice so you were I'll, there. We'll get to the long story. I was trying to keep it short for the show, but I was on the train from from New Jersey, and they stopped the train in Newark, New Jersey, and said everybody has to get off. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, military, well, National Guard and Port Authority started loading up onto the train. But they were they weren't paying attention. The towers just got hit, so I hid in the bathroom. So, <laughs> what possessed you to do that? Were you like you wanted to get the inside story, or you just committed to getting to work? No, I wanted to get to work. Uh huh. Okay. Right. I understand. I understand. Well, that's fascinating to me. How? How long after, well, let's see, uh, when all of those military personnel were getting on the train, at what point was that after the first or the second towers were hit? Approximately what time? Do you know? Uh, I would say it was right after the first tower got hit. Well, that's, so they were that's, already that's mobilizing. If, if that's true, that would be extremely revealing because at the time the first tower was hit, we're supposed to believe that everybody thought it was just an accident. Well, no, everybody did think it was an accident, but they still did shut down the uh, the train lines from, from New Jersey. But why the military they started, if they, they thought they, it was they, an they accident? They started loading with, 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 uh, with uh, what do they call them, the National Guard? They started loading automatically right away. And they were ready to go. <laughs> what do you think, Ray? Well, you gotta protect, you gotta, you got to protect your people. Yeah, well, emergency workers I, 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 there. Everybody was there. I mean, there were there was there was like ambulances pulling up to the to the train station, bringing in you know all kinds of equipment, all kinds of stuff. So, so I just went and hid in the bathroom because I wanted to go to work. So, uh-huh. so Rick, I'm I interested to know. So, you know, so you saw job. the towers. You saw the towers fall. Um, what what were your thoughts then after the towers fell? 
And what are your thoughts uh, more recently? I mean, uh, how how have you uh, has your perspective changed in any way, or, or you know, just what what were your reactions at the time? Well, they definitely changed. I mean, immediately as soon as I saw him fall, I said, "This is the end. That, that there's no more. That this is it. We all go, and we'll we'll meet each other on whatever plane our, our gods, uh, you know, give us." That's it. So you felt it was I, I like a yeah. world calamity in a sense. What's that? Like everything was going down. I think we lost huh? Rick. Oh, we couldn't hear you, dear. It dropped out. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. No, so yeah, you no, thought I it was. Thought, thought Go second, ahead. The second I saw the building. Okay. I'm sorry. Where are we at here? Yeah, we yeah. can hear you now. Yeah, just your reaction so at the time. Uh, you thought it was just like, you know, you're, you're on the other, you know, we're all going to meet our maker somehow. Right. Um, and in the, in the days following, did, did you did you have questions about what had happened or what you were being told in the news or talk to people about what you, sense you were making of it? In, in, in in all honesty, I was I was more ignorant uh, than anything because I saw the buildings fall and I saw planes hit. So I just I, I started getting mad at people that were questioning it. Did you actually instead see of, the planes, or you saw just the buildings fall? Let's go ahead. Sorry. Did you actually see the planes, or did you just see the buildings fall? I'm sorry. I saw the planes. I saw I saw the buildings oh, okay. fall. But did you so, see the plane it, actually hit it? Go ahead. Did you actually see the plane? No, I was in the train. It? I was on the train. Uh -huh. Okay, so you just saw the buildings fall because there have been questions about those planes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Rick, I, Rick, well, I, I have. I want to go back to my original question and ask you. Um, to, to, are I, we, I are we going to do the, uh, the? Never mind. Go ahead. Well, it, it's important. I'll explain why the answer is important. Um, how sure are you that when the train stopped and the military personnel and FEMA personnel got on the train and everyone else was asked to get off so that they could have the seats, how sure are you that that was after the first plane hit but before the second plane hit? Can you be sure of that or not? No, I can be. I can be sure it was before the buildings fell. Right. Okay. So it could have been after the second plane hit. Oh no! Okay. Listen, I'm not. I'm not against you guys on this because when I saw it, all my whole thing was this. All right. That let that let's let that retard president attack all these idiots. That's all I thought. But then now, after I think, after years and years and years of looking at things and studies and, and, and reports. I go, well, maybe, yeah, that wasn't exactly what they all said that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Why were these, and this is my question, why were the trains that I, the trains that I, the train I was on, specifically my train, why was that one so easily filled with, uh, with National Guard? So quickly. Well, exactly. Exactly. So um, quickly. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I have questions. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against you guys. No, we, no, we don't that. get that impression. We don't get that we impression at all. We don't have that impression at all. One of the was, things that it's not... interesting that, that you should call into this show tonight, uh, Rick. And the reason for that is, from my point, my personal point of view, is that as an investigator of what really happened on 9-11 and the problems with the official narrative for 20 years, um, just a few days ago on September 11th, I gave a presentation that is online, and I'll let the listeners know uh, how to watch it here in a moment, including yourself. Um, but I gave a presentation to a global 9-11 uh, 20th anniversary live stream event that went around the world. Um, my presentation was on um, the anthrax attacks, the follow-on anthrax attacks um, of 9-11 that are directly related to 9-11. And the important thing, the most important revelation in my presentation um, that you can watch online now uh, is that uh, before, before the attacks of 9-11, uh, 
uh, Mayor Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, uh, working with the Department of Justice, with Vice President Cheney's office, uh, with FEMA, with the New York Police Department, the New York Fire Department, and on and on and on. They had a, an, a terrorism, counterterrorism response exercise planned to be executed in New York City on September 12th. However, all of the FEMA, military, police, and other personnel yeah. were already ready to go on the 10th of September, the day before. And I would be okay. very surprised if those people who got, those military personnel who got on your train um, were not part of that pre-planned I, I exercise. Don't, I, don't dis, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm not, not disagreeing with you. I'm saying there's, this has been going on for quite a long time before then, and I'm sure you know uh, the 1992 bombing of the, uh, was it 92 or 94? 93. 93. World Trade Center. 93. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now when that bombing happened, that the, the guy who pretty much put the bombing together and did everything, he lived in Queens Gardens, which is, the, oh no, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Queens Gardens in, in Colonia, New Jersey section of Woodbridge, right by Woodbridge uh, Railway train station. Huh? They knew about this and they talked about it in every report for 9-11. They talked about this thing that happened eight years earlier. Right. So you knew what they were doing. Right, exactly. You're, you're referring to the World Trade Center one attack in February of 1993 mm-hmm. by Ramsey. Yeah, I, I, lived, I lived three blocks from that guy who did that. You mean from Ramsey Yusuf himself? What's that? Well, you're talking about Ramsey Yusuf? Yeah. I lived right down the street from him. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. I'm curious, I, I, Ray. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Ray. Lived in yeah, a I also... Apartment when, complex. When, you, when you mentioned the 1993 uh, truck bombing of the North, of the North Tower... Uh, it ends up being a small world because I have a friend in Toronto named Danell, and one of his best friends was Don D. Giovanni, I think was his name, and he was one of the, I guess, six p- people who died in the 1993. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, I remember. Terrible. I'm sorry to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for your loss, brother. Small world. I think your experience with the military personnel on the train at the time that that happened is incredibly important. So, Rick, what I'd like to suggest is you, on the contact form, you send a contact to us, and I'll make sure that Ray and Barbara get it so they can follow up with you. uh, I'm already in the... uh, My name is already in the uh, the 9-11 reports. Everything's in there, because I worked for for WNW at the time, and we went on the air for 14 hours straight. Mm-hmm. Well, I I really uh, appreciate that, and if you could send your contact, because I'd like to get back to our guest. I want to hear more about what he has to report, and this has been really illuminating to have a firsthand report. I really appreciate it, Rick. Sure. Yeah, really great I'll, just I'll send to it hear you. Uh, yeah. Just let me know where yeah, to send Rick, it. Just Rick, could, the contact just, form on the website. Rick, could you just clarify for you us when it. you I'll said your it. name... Rick, when you said your name is in the 9-11 report, are you saying that you are in, you are referenced in the 9-11 commission report? Absolutely, I am, yeah. Okay, what's your last name, if you're willing to let us know? Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Not Kaczynski, like Ted Kaczynski, no. no. <laughs> it's spelled a little different. Okay. Don't, All right. don't take it that way. See, that's why my, my last name never works out. I'm not allowed out. to talk about anything because my last name is Kaczynski, but it's spelled different from Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. I get it. I right. get it. Thank you right. so much. Well, we look forward to I, talking with you in the future. Mine's, mine's wow. Kaczynski with a C, not with a K. Okay. Thank Got you. It. I'm Thank not you. the bomber. I don't live in Montana. I don't own a shack. I promise you. <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Well, right. I hope you will continue listening to the show. Yeah, while we continue on. And Ray, uh, what do you think of all this? 
Well, I think it's interesting, you know, like interesting hearing Rick talk about like over time, he's had some more questions and come like his perspective has changed over the years. And I think it's so important. One of the things that, that I noticed in people when there would be sometimes uh, passionate discussions, very occasionally at a dinner conversation or at a, a party somewhere where people would start talking about September 11th and they talk about people who are part of the 9-11 truth movement and there'd be ridicule and other statements people saying no there's there's points to the story not holding together in some way and and there would inevitably some be somebody who would say well they'd ask a question like you know what what happened to the you know why was there no military response and there'd be people would say things like well you know, you're just asking these questions. You know, you have no respect for the families. You wouldn't be questioning the official story if you if you were more respectful of the families who lost loved ones. And when I was writing my book, uh, I had several conversations with people who know me, and they asked me if I'm writing something new. And I, I'd mentioned this, which was a different kind of thing to be writing than writing poetry or other things. And and I had a number of people tell me, you know, questions questions how could the families have questions and i thought it was really interesting to see how there was a time way back in you know the early 2000s where it was difficult to ask questions but there were some people asking questions and 911 press for truth documentary was out although not seen by a lot of people but it seemed to me that that over time this the kind of the calcification of of and hardening of views about about uh, how important the official story was amongst those that believe it's really important uh, was circled the wagons by also saying anyone who asks questions is somehow insulting to the families. And so I thought in writing my book, it's really important to to consider exactly the questions that the Family Steering Committee, Kristen Breitweiser and everyone else actually asked the 9-11 Commission to, to, to uh, investigate, and that the 9-11 Commissioners themselves, when they received these hundreds and hundreds of questions from the families, even thousands, I think Kristen Breitweiser mentions in her book at one point, that the, fa- that the 9-11 Commissioners said of those questions that these questions will be a roadmap for how we'll do our investigation. Right. And then they end up only answering nine percent with any seriousness. Mm. Right, because they couldn't—they couldn't answer the others, and and the official story still stands. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, it's this this dance of public deference toward the families, and then privately ignoring the questions in all in you know, uh, and and choosing to spend time during. The, the, the commission, when witnesses come forward by, you know, flattering them or having little asides about, uh, I'm an old man from the Midwest or whatever, you know, just all kinds of flattering. I forget Condoleezza Rice. She looked great, you know, where, uh, I don't know if they said, where'd you get, but I think, uh, Lori Van Auken, whose hu- husband Kenneth died in the North Tower says that, you know, there'd be witnesses who would be flattered for their hairdos. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Ray, could you address the Many people either don't know or maybe have forgotten that the Jersey girls, there wouldn't have been a 9-11 commission if it weren't effectively for the Jersey girls. Could you tell us that story? Sure. So there there were um, uh, four widows in New Jersey, Kristen Breitweiser, uh, Lori Van Auken, Patty Casaza, whose husband John died in the North Tower, and Mindy Klein whose husband Alan died in the North Tower. And there were gatherings. I mean, initially what's happening is the families are just grieving and trying to deal with funerals. But then the um, over in Congress, there's they're wanting to have a big bailout package for the airlines. What, $15 billion or whatever? And in that discussion on Congress, somebody says, hey, wait a minute, we can't just give $15 billion to the airlines and give nothing to the families. So then suddenly, something called the Victims' Compensation Fund gets quickly put together, and the families, including Kristen Breitweiser, Lori Van Auken, Patty Casas, and Mindy Kleinberg, are, are getting uh, you know, letters, I assume letters from the, uh, from the government saying, you need to come to... Uh, 
a forum where you'll be getting a presentation about the victim's compensation fund, you know, and, and so the families come. And it was at one of those gatherings that, that the four uh, Jersey girls, as they're called, uh, met each other and, and began to form a, you know, a, a potent force to start driving, uh, you know, an effort to, to have an investigation. There were other people like Carrie Lemack, uh, and Robin Weiner, who are forming the families of September 11th, the FOS 11, which is more establishment group, but they're also wanting an investigation. And so are people like Mary Fetchett and Beverly Eckert up in um, New, New Canaan, Connecticut, with voices of September 11th. And then uh, Skyscraper Safety Campaign with Monica Gabrielle and, and Sally Reaganhart. So there's these different groups that are all kind of forming, but certainly the Jersey Girls, you know, all four of them were part of you know, pushing to have a rally on the uh, on the 11th of June 2002 because they weren't getting anywhere. Uh, Dick Cheney was was phoning members of Congress saying, you know, quash any any effort to have an investigation, threatening Tom Daschle, the Senate Majority Leader, and telling him not to have an investigation. They couldn't afford the money, the resources. <laughs> and so the families did have this invest. They had this rally on the 11th of of June 2002 they you know they're running around Home Depot trying to make signs and everything and you know figure out what they're going to do and so uh Joe Lieberman from Connecticut Democrat John McCain from from Arizona Republican were among the two in, in the Senate pushing uh to support them plus Chris Shea's uh, Republican New Jersey congressman and a, a number of other ones on both sides of the aisles and so uh Fast forward, they get the support to start, you know, figuring out Washington, D.C. and the Senate and the Congress. And then Kristen Breitweiser uh, ends up, I think maybe all four of the Jersey girls end up with Chris Matthews hardball in late uh, August of 2002. And, uh, you know, saying, you know, what is, you know, we should be having an investigation. It just took, you know, five days for the Challenger space shuttle in 1986, January 28th to February 3rd. Uh, but here we've lost nearly 3,000 people, and there's this stonewalling. And so then when Kristen Breitweiser got to go uh, uh, before the joint 9-11 inquiry of the Senate and C Congress Intelligence Committees on the 18th of September 2002, and she gave her riveting testimony, then uh, you know, wh White House staff said a train was coming and nothing could stop it. Yeah. So yeah, Kristen Breitweiser's presentation to the joint House Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, uh, I believe, was the turning point. Barbara, yeah. Barbara, we're at the top of the hour, and this is a really fascinating conversation, and I'd like to give us the opportunity to go into depth. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. Ray has written a book called Unanswered Questions, in which he explores the questions of the Family Steering Committee that were not uh, answered, <laughs> they were ignored. And we'll get back to you after the break. Okay. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today 
And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Over and out.